Synoptic Gospels tell the story from the earth up. John tells it from the heaven, heavens down. I think it's no accident in the canon that we get three Gospels that tell the story from the earth up and one from heaven down. Ever since Jesus was born, there has been great debate on who he is, and sometimes this led into conflict. You're talking about Yeshua, you know, that brown guy who's a refugee, a uh, big socialist. And some people used him for their political agendas. The most famous person in the world by far said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no. He said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ. Others used him to make sense of their experience. Was Jesus gay? Either way, there's a clear question being asked. Who is Jesus? The question that our generation of young people on the campus are asking today is, Who art thou, Lord? Who is Jesus? You're listening to Young and Sanctified. I'm your host, Justin. And every episode, I talk to some amazing people hoping to cultivate childlike faith and seek Christ-centered knowledge. So, grab your coffee and a notebook or whatever you need and join me as we grow together. Today, we will be learning from Dr. Daryl Bach, American Evangelical Christian New Testament scholar, executive director of cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center and senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you learned something. Dr. Bach, thank you so much for making the time for the show. I'm glad to be with you, Justin. So the this series that I'm doing on who is Christ or Christology, I decided to start with the Gospels because I think that's what uh, regular day people are uh, most familiar with. So I think a good place to start is just hearing how you define the Gospels. What are they and why do they share different themes of Jesus? Well, the Gospels are a literary genre that the New Testament created to discuss the life and significance of Jesus. There are ancient biographies, which means that they're not modern biographies. So, for example, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus' childhood, what made him the way that he was in one sense. We certainly don't have any physical description, the characteristics of it that certainly would be part of a modern biography, along with the photos of who, you know, that we're talking about, that kind of stuff. No, this is strictly about what this person taught and what their example is all about, what there is to learn from knowing about their life. So uh, that's what the Gospels are. Some people distinguish between the Synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel, because the Synoptics present Jesus I say indirectly, I actually say they present him from the earth up. They start with categories that we're used to and we watch it dawn on people who Jesus is. John's the exact opposite. John tells us from the very first verse who he's thinking Jesus is. In the beginning uh, was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. This is CNN. I mean, you know, from the very first verse uh, (laughs) what John is after. And therefore, the church likes John versus the synoptics in thinking about Christology And one of the Hmm. burdens that I have in my teaching is to appreciate the Christology of the synoptics because the synoptics present Christology for people who have no clue who Jesus is and who need to understand who he is. And so I say, Hmm. you know, the church has a very difficult assignment. It argues that Jesus Christ is the only person in the billions of people who've occupied the earth throughout history who is also God incarnate 
Okay, there's no other hmm. example of that uh, in in the way we think about people. I mean, we might give them the appellation God, and in the ancient world, they gave people the appellation of God, but that's not what's meant by what who we think Jesus is. And so that's a complete unique category. How do you create a category for people who don't have that category? Jesus is the unicorn in that sense. And so how do you do that well? And the church is so used to its own PR and to its own existence that it assumes that language, but it doesn't think about it. Can you talk, can you, can you that last sentence, I think that there, that was pretty uh, dense. Can you, yeah. Well, my point is, oh, of course, Jesus is the God man. That's what the church has always said that he was, but we don't realize mm-hmm. how strange in some ways that strikes a person who's never darkened the door of a church, who's never been around the church, who doesn't know Genesis from Malachi. And I'll just say as a side observation, that's many people in the yeah. world. Yeah, I mean, that could also be many people in the church, just not being able to you know biblical illiteracy. Exactly right. Yeah. What can we learn about like the formation of the Gospels? So they they are they offer distinct, as you show in in a lot of your work, they show offer distinct Christological ideas. So how are we supposed to uh, understand that? I know there's you know there's debates on that and stuff, but I'm curious what you think. Right. Well, I I, I think what we have to do is recognize that different audiences have different needs. And so um, you get different emphases depending on, for example, a Jewish audience had a, a sets of concerns about the Torah and the law hmm. that Gentiles haven't even thought about. You know, they, they might even know what the Torah and the law is. So, so that's going to impact uh, the different. I tell people that you ought to, if you want an analogy for the Gospels, it's like um, it's like the NFL and instant replay. Uh, it's like the different camera angles that you get on a question of what's happening in the game, and certain camera angles are going to help you answer hmm. that question, and other camera angles aren't, and because they don't go there, they aren't positioned to go there. If I can say it that way. And so the Gospels work the same way, that different writers have different concerns. They're looking at Jesus with this concern in mind versus the other writers looking with that concern in mind. And so they, one Gospel may not answer the question that you're asking, whereas the other Gospel might well do that. Or, in a few cases, they might be looking at the same question, but they may be looking at it even from different angles, and that may nuance what they're telling you about that space. And so the ability to be discerning about why we have four Gospels, why they complement one another, and they don't just duplicate one another, is important. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So let's go into the Gospels a little bit then, like their their images of Jesus. Um, can you spend just a few minutes talking about the, each of the Gospels' uh, identities of Jesus, or themes, I guess, of Jesus? Yeah, well, let's we'll do it in canonical order. So Matthew's built around five discourses. There's a lot of teaching about what Jesus thought. There also are a large set of Jewish concerns. If you want to see that, just compare the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew with the equivalent Sermon on the Plain in Luke. All your legal questions, what are called the six antitheses in Matthew, only one of them shows up in Luke, and that has to do with the core ethical idea of of loving your enemy uh, and loving your neighbor, those themes. Uh, everything else that has to do with the law and the background of the law uh, disappears in Luke, but it's quite prominent in Matthew. So you've got, you, Matthew's interested in explaining how Jesus was the Messiah, how the rejection of him took place in the context 
of Judaism, but how he was still who he claimed to be. And it's dealing with that dispute. And Christology is um, significantly impacted by those sets of concerns. Mark's completely different. Mark has almost no teaching at all. There are only two discourse units of significance in Mark. Uh, one of them is um, is the teaching on the parable section, and the other is the Olivet Discourse. Everything else is missing. I mean, even something as beautiful as the Sermon on the Mount is missing. So um, he's an action. He's an action gospel figure. He's he, he's an action figure <laughs> gospel writer. I don't know how quite how to say it. Might maybe all kids under twelve and under will appreciate this. But he he moves from event to event, mm. and he's doing stuff all the time, and he's showing who he is. Actually, all the synoptic gospels have Jesus talk less about who he is and have him show who he mm. is through what I call cultural scripts. These are things embedded in first century culture that the writer doesn't have to explain, the original reader didn't have to have explained to them because they lived in the culture. And so they got the full point of what was going on, whereas in our world, we probably have to explain what some of these cultural scripts are and what they mean for the depiction of the story. We can come back to that if you want. Um, Luke is, um, Jesus, again, is a consummate teacher, but he's a consummate teacher with concerns on the full world, on the Gentile world, whereas in Matthew, when we get Isaiah 40, you know, we stop with the idea of, um, uh, of you know, uh, be, uh, be prepared for the one coming in the wilderness. You know, that idea. In Luke, it goes all the way down, and all flesh will see the glory of God. It goes down two more verses mm-hmm. to get that universal feel. The genealogy in Matthew goes back to Abraham. The genealogy in Luke goes back to Adam. So you've got that universal Gentile emphasis that you— have all this teaching, Fifty, fully 50% of the parables that we know about from Jesus come only in Luke. So there's a teaching emphasis in what he's doing and in what he's emphasizing. There's a very structural, structured geographic emphasis in Luke Acts as a whole. We start off in Jerusalem, we go to Galilee, we watch Jesus' journey to his fate in Jerusalem. In fact, that's almost labeled a journey to Jerusalem section of the gospel. He dies in Jerusalem, the gospel goes out from Jerusalem and eventually hits the ends of the world. So there's a geographic structure in organization to Luke-Acts that's important to the way it tells um, its its approach to Jesus. Even though all these gospels that I've mentioned, the first three, overlap in significant ways in terms of, of what they teach, they also do distinctive things that mark them out as doing uh, unique things as well. There's more ethics in Luke, there's more. Uh, there's more focus on the marginalized mm. in Luke. There's more focus on women in Luke. So Luke is doing a lot. I often joke that uh, conservatives like Matthew and liberals like Luke. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. so, uh, and they're yeah. both in our Bible. So put that together. And then, uh, and then we come to John, and John is John is what I call the Gospel mm. upon further review. In other words, this is John looking back at the significance of everything, and at spots he says, I'm telling you this event, but we didn't get it at the time, okay? So, for example, when Jesus rides in on the donkey and the what is often called the triumphal entry, it's actually the a-triumphal entry because he isn't greeted as the figure that he purports and presents himself as being. Anyway, in the midst of that text, when the allusion to Zechariah is present, John mm-hmm. makes the point, we didn't get this at the time. You know, this is something we understood later upon further review. So John is bringing out and making explicit what was implicit in the Gospels, uh, but 
but is at the core of what the message of the gospel is. So that gospel is what I call from heaven down. Whereas the first three gospels are from the earth up, and you watch it dawn on people who Jesus is. From John, you know from the first verse who he is. He's come from heaven. He's a preexistent word. He's become flesh. And you know from the get-go who Jesus is in terms of Christology. So the church gravitates towards John because it does all our heavy lifting for us. But the average person who needs the gospel needs the gospel as explained in the synoptic gospels because they aren't where John is in terms of understanding who Jesus is. So that's how I see the gospel working together. And I did that about as quickly as I could. No, no, we're not. I mean, I'm not in a rush. You can take your time um, yeah. with the, ne- yeah. the next few questions. So go back to what you were saying about Mark and the cultural uh, lenses and, and you know, scripts. Yeah. Yeah. So here's, so here's a cultural script. We'll have a little fun. The cowboys are going up to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads. Okay. What what does that say? That's not a very that's a some hmm. people would call that a theological sentence, but probably not for the reasons that we think about it mm-hmm. theologically. But what have I just talked about? Okay, and people go, well, they talk about football. I say, well, first, what kind of football? Nice thing to say, all right, after the World Cup, right? Okay, American football. Okay, what else do you know from that sentence? Who are the Cowboys? Okay, well, that's the Dallas Cowboys, and who are the Cheeseheads? Well, that's the Green Bay Packers. And where's the frozen tundra? It's in Wisconsin. Actually, we can be more specific than that. We're actually in Lambeau Field in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay? So that is, that is compact communication, communicated culturally. If I gave that sentence to someone in Saudi Arabia and gave them an English-Arabic dictionary and gave them just this sentence and said, tell me what this sentence means, and they looked up every word, they probably couldn't figure out what that sentence is really about. Because it's the cultural context that gets triggered by people who live in the culture who come to understand what that's about. And if you don't understand the cultural context of what's going on, you don't understand what's being done or said. Now, in the Bible, sometimes cultural scripts come up and sometimes they're named for us and at other times they're assumed. So let me give you an example where it's named for us. When Jesus heals the paralytic, okay, and the first thing he says to the to the paralytic while he's sitting there, he's come to the party, he wants to be healed. And Jesus instead says to him, your sins are forgiven. And I like to tease people when I discuss this passage. So you're the paralytic, your friends have just dropped you in, they put you in front of Jesus, you want to be healed, and the first thing Jesus says to you is, your sins are forgiven, what are you thinking? I didn't crash the party for this reason. That's not what I came for, all right? <laughs> yeah, what in the world, what in the world does sin have to do with anything, all right? And then... Theologians in the audience, and sometimes theologians, even though they don't believe what's being said or a clue as to what's going on, say, only God can forgive sins. Okay? They write, that's, that's the cultural script being introduced to you, and then Jesus says, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? That's a trick question, because you can't see forgiveness of sins. There's no way to prove Forgiveness of sins has happened. I, te- I tease people, well, what does forgiveness of sins look like? Do you go, bye, sin, nice to have you here, hope you never come back? Or, or, I mean, how do you handle that space? All right? But if I say to a paralytic, get up and walk, it's showtime. Something's got to happen. So Jesus says this, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. He ties something that you can't see and that has a cultural script underneath it to something you can see to make the claim about who he is. 
the Son of Man has authority to do something only God can do. That's the shorthand. Okay? And that's actually the point of that passage. But if you don't understand the cultural scripts, you'll say, oh, well, Jesus can forgive sins, but why is that such a big deal? Well, it's such a big deal because it's only something God can do. So, and see, so that's the subtle Christology coming through. And there are numerous kinds of events in the synoptic gospels that work that way, where if you understand the cultural script behind it or what's on it, Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, that's another one. Okay, Sabbath, big deal, day of rest. Who instituted the Sabbath? God did. Why did he institute it? He rested on the seventh day. Uh, that's the divine calendar. Who has authority over the divine cal- Who has authority? Think about this. Who has authority over the Lord's day? The Lord does. Okay? But when he says the Son of Man has authority over, over the Sabbath, I mean, that's not just, oh, wow. And, of course, in our world, the Sabbath doesn't mean anything. So, so you know, so what's going on there? So you start adding these up, and they're like bricks in a wall making a portrait. And you come to see who Jesus, when you put them all together, you go, whoa. Another one, Jesus calms the winds and the waves. Okay, what do the disciples say when that happens? Who's able to command the winds and the waves and they obey him? Okay, they're, they're mulling in their mind, who are we walking with here? Okay, they may have thought, well, we're walking with the Messiah. We're hopping one in the middle of the plan of God, the one who's going to bring us victory and hope, et cetera. But who is this guy really? Who is this mass marauder? You know, uh, that that's the question that's being asked. And you put, start to put another one, Lord's table. This is, this is one of my favorites because people never think about it. Lord's table, the Last Supper, okay? Actually a Passover meal in all likelihood, okay? Certainly in the Passover season. Already has an established liturgy. That liturgy is in the Torah. It represents the initial act of salvation that formed Israel, etc. Big deal, okay? And he changes the liturgy. Who has the right to totally change the liturgy of something that's in the Torah? Oh, interesting. Okay. All hmm. right. Well, you start to add all these up together. He cleanses the temple. Okay. He goes in and he cleanses. The first act is a Messiah. He walks in and cleanses. If you don't know the cultural script that the Messiah was not only coming to bring victory over the Gentiles, but he was coming to purge Israel, okay, you might miss why he went to the temple and did that. I mean, you would know, hmm. oh, it's a prophetic act. Okay. He's doing what prophets do. No, he's doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. So mm. those kinds of things. And the Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, are loaded with those cultural scripts. Another one, yeah. not having not to do with Jesus, but tells you a lot about him. John the Baptist. This is only in Luke, this detail. The passage is in all the passage where we where he says, uh, I, you know, I am not the Messiah. I only baptize with water. Uh, the one coming after me is going to baptize with spirit and fire. The axe lies at the root of the tree. That's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. But Luke tells us that the reason John said that is because the crowd was speculating as to whether he might be the one to come. So mm. actually what John is telling you is, how do I know who the one to come is and what will the new, be indication of the new era? The indication mm. of the new era will be the one who, who, uh, who brings the Spirit of God to the people of God, who invokes the new covenant. And there's even another piece that's a cultural script. He says, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Now, the cultural script is, in Judaism, uh, uh, a Jew was not supposed to become a slave, but if they did become a slave, there was only, there was one thing they were never supposed to do, and that was to untie the strap of a sandal in order to wash someone's feet. Hmm. And here is John the Baptist, who is a prophet, 
pretty high up on the religious vocational ladder, like way up there. And then Jesus said about John, just to make it more exciting, there's no one greater born a woman. Okay, so Mm -hmm. like that ladder is high and he's at the top. All right. But the difference between him and the one to come is such that he's not worthy to perform a task that was viewed as too demeaning for an Israelite slave to perform. Okay, that's telling you a lot. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's telling you a lot about who this Jesus is who's around the corner in the story. So that's how the synoptic gospels do their work. And you can miss it. I mean, you, you can blink and miss it uh, if you mm-hmm. don't know the cultural scripts that are at play. Yeah, no, that makes sense because I, I recently read about uh, the, I'm going to use your term, cultural script of the healing on the Sabbath. And I like the whole rabbinic mm-hmm. um, debates about whether or not it's good, you know, to save a life on Sabbath. Um, you want, right. Did you you want to talk about that one as well a little bit? Yeah, that's another one. I mean, that's another one that you're supposed. You, theoretically, the rabbis would allow in life and death situations an exception to be made on the Sabbath. But look at how far you have to push that in order to get that. You can't heal on the Sabbath. I mean, we have a passage in Luke where it says there are six days to heal, but not on this mm-hmm. day. Okay. Meanwhile, G- and and the, and then there's the debate that. They say, um, you know, where they're suggesting this is a violation of law, and and Jesus says, what better day to heal than on the day when you're honoring mm-hmm. God? I mean, he has the exact opposite view. So, and and he's Lord of the Sabbath, remember that little whisper coming earlier in mm-hmm. the gospel? So he's allowed to say this. So those, those are the types of tension points, cultural realities that the reader and the writer share because they live in that world that sometimes we miss. Mm -hmm. And therefore we miss some pixelation on what's happening in a passage. You know, we're operating at 320 instead of 4K. And as you were talking, uh, especially about the healings, um, I didn't prepare you for this question, but could I ask a, an additional one? Yeah, sure. If, if, you, if you don't want it, I can yeah. always edit it out. Um, so regarding the healings, you know, for instance, like the, the woman uh, with, you know, who was bleeding and right. she touched him. And I know some people say that that was a, uh, because she was ritually impure, he, he became also ritually or, you know, would be ritually impure according to the laws. So how, how are we as readers thinking about Christology and how, how do we because oh, he actually reverses the situation okay mm-hmm. the normal thing that you would think would happen religiously is not what happened in this case his power was so great and so total she became clean and he was never unclean mm-hmm. and so it's the re- exact it, it's the exact reverse of what you would expect and that's actually part of the point I have come to reverse the situation you find yourself in. So he, so he's incorruptible, in defiable. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not that he broke the Levit- Leviticus laws; it's that they weren't, they don't. Well, he and he may have broken the Levitic the Levitical law, but he's in charge of the Levitical <laughs> law. It's his law. <laughs> Interesting. I never thought about. Yeah, it's his law. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Huh. Yeah, because I personally I've been wrestling about uh, Jesus and and how he interacts with the laws and like not not changes them but kind of takes them deeper 
Yeah, um, you mentioned that the antitheses. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've been really med- meditating on those lately. Um, so in in your book, uh, the one that we, the one that I'm I'm reached out to you about, it's organized not by gospel, which is you know a lot of books do organize by the gospel's view, like one individual gospel. But you, what I appreciate is you go by like general themes and events. So for instance, you spend a while. I think like a whole chapter just on the two accounts of Jesus's birth and the genealogies. Mm-hmm. The way this is structured, it's actually structured around a synopsis. You'll notice there are references to Aland and Huck and Grieven. And what I'm trying to do is to lay out the tradition in the sequence in which the tradition lays itself out, putting all the gospels together, which can be confusing for people. Because I actually discuss each event where it falls in a given gospel, even if the order is not the same as it appears in another gospel. So some events get multiple treatments because where they fit in a given gospel is not where they fit in the other gospel. And and I'm trying to look at it from that angle when I do it. So so this isn't quite this isn't quite trying to make the gospels into one gospel, but it is trying to play with the way the tradition has been structured between the gospels. That allows me to bring out the individual emphases of the individual Gospels, as well as at the same time showing where they overlap. So I'm trying to do two things at once. I'm trying to show where they're similar and where they're distinct, and also in some cases supply the why for why that is, because this Gospel writer is in this sequence doing this, and the other Gospel writer is in that sequence doing that. And uh, and so that's the, that's the structure. That's actually hard in some ways. I actually, there have been times when I said, and I thought to myself, uh, Mark Strauss has written a wonderful book on the four Gospels, and I said, that's another way to do this, and that's actually easier for the reader in many ways. It is to just stay focused on one Gospel at a time and then maybe put it all together at the end. I decided to mix them side by side because I wanted to show people the relation the, the relationship that exists um, in the sequencing of Jesus' life within the tradition itself. That's what I was actually trying to do. Okay, that makes sense. So can you talk a little bit about like the genealogies and their importances or importance? Because uh, the one sermon I heard on the genealogy of Jesus, the main headline was, he made it. <laughs> and that was it. That was the importance. <laughs> Which is fair. Well, again, here's a, here's here's a different. Let's talk about the infancy materials in general. And then we'll talk about the, because in fact, Lucan genealogy doesn't show up in the infancy material. It shows up elsewhere, which is where you expect a genealogy to fall. There's a reason for that. Right before the temptations to show that Jesus is the second Adam, because the genealogy in Matthew only went as far as Abraham. Okay, But here's the difference. In, in the infancy material of Luke, everything's very positive. It's full of joy. It is. It, it, it is Christmas celebration on steroids, all right? There's only one negative hint anywhere in the embassy material that something hard is going to happen, and that's when Simeon says to Mary, you know, he's going to be like a sword cutting through your soul. Um, you know, that's the, only, that's the only cloud. Matthew's completely different, okay? Matthew, the entry of Jesus into the world is a struggle from the get-go. Herod is after him. Okay. Yes, there's the know the Magi coming to worship him, but there's all this protection that God has to engage. Dreams are very important in in Matthew. 
Matthew is looking at it through Joseph's eyes. Luke is looking through at it through Mary's eyes. So there are all these differences going on between the Gospels, even though they're talking about the same. The birth is still in Bethlehem that they share, okay? But they share very little else. Um, they share a virgin birth, okay? Um, but and and that's about the only two features that overlap. Um, and, and so. Um, so that's the difference because Matthew is dealing with the conflict that Jesus is coming into Jeru- into Judaism meant for that faith and meant for Israel. Luke is interested in how the gospel went out into all the world. And you see those differences even in the genealogy. There's another thing about genealogy that's important. In Matthew's genealogy, you have four women mentioned in the midst of all those men. Okay, They're the only four women mentioned in either of the genealogy. And every one of them has an element of taint about them in one way or another. So, um, uh, so that those are those are important indications of the fact that the gospel is ultimately about grace, and that even in the background of Jesus's genealogy, there are these difficult experiences: Tamar, you know, um, Rahab, Ruth, <coughs> Bathsheba. Um, you look at these experiences in the background. God covers that. God covers men and women. God covers um, even us at our worst moments. Christ has come for that. Could there also be a um, kind of like a comparison of all those women um, or mothers who gave birth uh, to leaders, then comparing the mother of Jesus who gave birth to the Messiah? Is that is there comparisons there? Well, interestingly, Interestingly enough, that hint comes in Luke, okay, because we we have because we have in the hymn of uh, Mary, we have allusions to Hannah. In fact, the language is very much like the opening of First Samuel when uh, Samuel's being born and Hannah's song. So yes, that it's going on, but it's that's going on primarily in Luke. Interesting. So I was you mentioned it. Briefly, can you talk more about why uh, the Lucan account was after the temptation? Oh well, it's before the temptation. It oh, sets before. up the temptation. It sets up the temptation. So that's why, because now Jesus is going to be tempted by the devil. Well, Adam went through that experience. He didn't even get to the second inning, you know. <laughs> so, um, so he went down pretty quick. It was a technical knockout in the first round. All right, and uh, and Jesus took him to the end of the match. And, and took care of so much so that Satan fleed at the end. So it's setting up the contrast between first Adam and second Adam and that Jesus is qualified to do what Adam failed to be for us. So why do, I'm just curious, why do you think that Luke omitted the women in the genealogy, it, but, but Luke's account is very in, like aiming towards the inclusion of the Gentiles? Because he's got women in a different way. He's got he's got Elizabeth there. He's got he's got Mary there. So he's not thinking about the women of the past, okay, which is what Matthew does. He's thinking about the women who are impacted in the present. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Um and so you you gave us a lot of great information. Um and sort of like kind of wrap this up or like not a wrap up the conversation, but bring it all together. Um uh, what was the the other book you mentioned, by the way, in the beginning? The uh, other book that I mentioned is Jesus, God, Man. When I did Jesus According to Scripture originally, it was a 600-plus page book. 
And the whole last piece, the fourth section, was actually why I wrote the book. I wanted to lay the groundwork of taking everyone through all the passages and then say, when you put this all together, what do you have? Okay, what does this say about Jesus as a whole? Well, what happened in the first edition is no one got to the discussion of the last section because of all the detail of everything else that was in there. So I, so I went mm-hmm. back and I said, I want to do this in a different way to highlight what I think what the landing point is. And so I wrote, a, okay. a, when I did the second edition, the second edition was just the work through all the passages, okay, ending up with the Gospel of John. And then I did a second book called Jesus, God, Man, which was the synthesis of all that. So I talked about, that's where I talked about the kingdom and the theme of the kingdom. That's where I talked about how Jesus shows his Christology. Uh, that's where I talked about the different kinds of themes that are that are shared and unique a little bit to each gospel, that kind of thing. And kind of went back through the life of Jesus as a synthesis, as opposed to doing all that analysis. And uh, to me, that... It's a short little book, uh, and it's designed to be short and yeah. crisp. It's a little bit of an executive summary of all that other detail mm-hmm. that I was doing. So that's what that book is. So many of the things that I share with you regard to Christology and their core content and how the Synoptic Gospels build their Christology uh, is in that second book. So you say that second book is an executive summary. So in our remaining time, could you give an executive summary of the executive summary and kind of the theme well, the executive, the executive summary is that the synoptic gospels tell the story from the earth up. John tells it from the heaven, heavens down. Uh, and I think it's no accident in the canon that we get three gospels that tell the story from the earth up and one from heaven down, although the church has tended to handle it in the reverse, with the reverse emphasis because we like the bottom line. We want to land the plane. But I'm saying to people who don't know anything about the Bible, to know how to take them on the journey before you land the plane is actually pretty important. And so, because that's how people experience Jesus. My remark when I talk about this is, no one comes to Jesus this way. They're born, the doctor gives them the swat of life, and they go, wah, 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 Jesus, the second person, the ontological trinity, wah, wah, wah. No one comes to Jesus that way, okay? At some point in a person's life, if they come to understand who Jesus is, Someone sat down or someone sat down with them and explained the uniqueness of Jesus to them, and they had to create a category they didn't have in their mind. Uh, and and so, so God does this three times, three different ways, okay, in the hopes maybe they'll get it, okay? And then John is the summary and says, now let me tell you what I said. And, uh, and, and so it does it from both angles, and that's why we get, that's why we have four Gospels and not one. Uh, I think because we can do that in a variety of ways and present it and we can see it from different angles and we can take on the different angles that are involved. And then what we get is that the Christology of the synoptics equals the Christology of John. We just took a different highway to get there. So now uh, the final question, and I'm really curious about this um, because you mentioned Dr. Mark Strauss. I actually interviewed Uh him uh, uh, a few weeks ago. and he, um, he gave an interesting answer. So how, how are modern readers supposed to navigate the different representations of Jesus? You know, some people try to blend them all together and some people try to uh, stick to the text. So how, how, do you, how should we uh, approach this? 
I, I think you do a little of both, and you need to realize what you're asking when. So um, I think you do them. Uh, they're presented separately. They need to be appreciated separately. Sometimes, sometimes when we teach and preach the gospels, we, co- we preach and teach what I call gospel stew. So let's say I'm in Matthew, okay, and because there's a parallel in Mark and Luke, while I'm talking about Matthew, I'll throw in, I'll put a little salt, and that'll be Mark, and a little bit of pepper, and that'll be Luke. Okay, and I stir it up, and I give you the whole. The danger of that, or the problem in that, can be is that it might water down the emphasis that you're getting from Matthew, and you may not even see it because you're looking for what they share, okay? And so what you want to do is you want to be able to recognize this is what the Gospels share, and this is where each is distinct. You want to ask both sets of those questions. And so some, sometimes the best way to see this distinctness is just to stay in the Gospel. I, I call this the difference between reading vertically and reading horizontally. Reading vertically is reading the gospel on its own terms. Reading horizontally is putting the gospels next to one another and seeing what they're having to say about the same kind of event, that kind of thing. You need to do both. Um, Because in doing that, you will see both what they share and what is distinct, and both have value. So when you think about who Jesus is, you're, you're reading it. You're reading it to put the whole picture together. The only way to put the whole picture together is to do both of those steps. And the only way to appreciate why you have each book in the canon that you do is to understand what they each distinctly bring. So you're looking for the distinctions on the one hand and what they share on the other. They have the same bottom line, okay, but they get there in different ways, and those different ways help us with different sets of concerns. So the difference is they shouldn't be a concern for, you know, new readers or in fact, I argue this is actually how I do my teaching on the Gospels. My premise is, is that most people are intimidated by the Gospels because of the differences. And I'm sitting here going, no, what makes the Gospels valuable is understanding how the differences work. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, we've, we've been, that's what we've been talking about this whole time of the value of the differences. Exactly right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I do appreciate your time and uh, your expertise. And, and I know it was a little bit uh, of a waiting game for us to get connected. So I'm so grateful. No, I'm glad to do it, Justin, anytime. This is great. And uh, all the people who you interview, most of whom I probably know, um, greet them. <laughs> I will. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.